Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. I think that, uh, Paul, you raised some, some excellent questions. I think that the work we're doing here is critical because we're taking we're taking what those guys did and taking it further, right? And I think that that's the part of the work of this class. You know, most of the history of the church, this just basic premise of the class, and this this may sound untrue at the beginning, but what I'm doing, what we're doing throughout the book and throughout the class, I'm going to equate violence with sin. That may just ring untrue, and maybe a little bit it's just a semantic issue, but I'm going to expand what the word violence will mean in several directions. One, I think that we can do a violence to ourselves psychologically or psychoanalytically. Uh, That is, that oppressive thing that Paul is describing in Romans 7, I will take as a form of sin. On the other end, that you know, the last chapter of the book, which is actually the longest chapter, I go through just typical things, and this could be expanded, you know, endlessly, but I just take some prototypical examples. Is racism a form of violence? And what I'm going to show is racism, nationalism, because of my background in Japan, just a kind of ethnic identity, I'm going to demonstrate how each of these in some way that they're all participating in the same structure. That is, we're going to look at and define sin as violence or this oppressive force that can be personal or it can be corporate, and we're going to connect it to, and and this too is going to sound strange until we get there, but we're going to connect it to the law. And what I mean by the law is not the Mosaic law per se, but we're actually going to trace how an orientation to the law, part of this, those of you who are a little bit familiar with my, the book that I've done, you know, if you talk about the law, well, you can expand that category. The law could be any number of things. And I think that's the way that Paul actually means it, that the law can be that law in his mind, it can be the symbolic order, it can be language, it can be the authority figures, it can be the authority figures in the culture, it can be our psychoanalytic authority figures. We're going to flatten or, or broaden this structure out so that by the end, to say that sin is violence, that's going to mean, that's going to resonate and go a lot of different directions. And so just, you know, the basic premise that I'm starting with shouldn't be too controversial for those familiar with the early church. But the problem is to, you know, I already pointed out that in the early church, they understand, oh, we can't participate in violence, but they didn't recognize the oppression of women, the oppression of slaves, or the delight they might take in seeing their enemies roast in hell. You know, that is a kind of violence that you're either projecting onto God or, you know, you're imagining there's a kind of reified understanding of culture. And that's always the the thing that's taking place is there's this kind, we just imagine this structure, it's just there for us. And it's just the way things are. I didn't know how to order these chapters. I didn't know where to jump into this thing. But one of the chapters is on an apocalyptic understanding of the atonement. Because what we're describing is so radical that it takes a, you know, this is the way John, but I think it's many places in the New Testament, it's going to talk about an apocalyptic breaking in of the work of Christ. And what that means is you're going to trade one world order for another world order. And so as long as we're in the old world order, and we can just get stuck on the necessity of violence. It just seems inevitable. It just seems that you can't get around it. You know, how do you break that down? How do you begin to undo that? I began with hermeneutics, with Bible reading, because I think most of us assume, well, there's this violence in the Bible. What's necessary then to begin to break it down, but you could begin it, you know, in any number of places, but I think we just have to begin our hermeneutics 
with the centrality, a kind of Christocentric hermeneutics that we're going to read through that lens. So as you're talking about violence, that's basically the word, the way the world works. Uh, another word comes to mind to me, and that would be power. You know, ever yeah. since the fall, when mankind wanted and tried to become God themselves through their pride and through their sin, it's been a power struggle ever since. And violence goes with power. Am I onto something with that? Yeah. And again, this is a kind of a matter of semantics. If Jason were here, he'd just say, amen, brother. He would equate those two things. And so again, we're, we are doing a little bit of semantics, but I think we have to break down a little bit. What do we mean by power? And of course, the power of Christ over and against the grave, the power of Christ is, I think, a power to be re reckoned with. The word power, what we mean is that kind of dominant power over another, you know, lording it over another person. You know, with that kind of understanding, and I'm thinking here of Michel Foucault, you know, when he talks about the regimes of power, or we talk even Francis Bacon, who says that knowledge is power. I think that's what they're talking about, a kind of oppressive force. But I think in the New Testament that there is then this kind of counter to that. And whether if we want to use the word power or not, we might argue, oh, that's the wrong word, I don't know. But what is taking place in the person and work of Christ and what is made available to us then is a capacity. Resurrection power is a greater power than the power of death. And so that would be the my, my little nuance to that. Sure. So, Paul, uh, something that uh, trying to think through, especially your material that I read today, uh, it was quite interesting to see that even though the early church had a nonviolence stand, it didn't necessarily mean the same thing for everyone, uh, whether it be for a slave or, or the oppression of women or whatever it may be. My question is, you know, the, the tradition that uh, I'm a part of and some of the others uh, maybe in this group are, is this idea, hey, we want to go back to the New Testament. That principle and that idea almost seems faulty. We, we want to set ourselves and say, at some point, somebody had it right, and we're going to model that. And yet, there's nowhere in the New Testament where they had it right, even though maybe they were practicing things uh, in those first couple of centuries that an idea were good things, they still, they hadn't gotten it right or worked it out as well. Nor will we ever, this side of the complete restoration of things, will we ever get it right. It's a profound thought. Let me make it even more contrary. I think that the desire to return is itself a form of violence. And we're going to encounter this all kinds of places. You know, here in the United States, if we could just get back to the 50s, <laughs> back when everything was good and, you know, families were strong, that this is a, a thing you're going to encounter again and again. That with the positing of an identity, there is always the positing of the notion of return. And this is especially true in the case of the nation state. You have to remember a little bit my background in Japan. Japan is a, is a kind of interesting case in point because it's such a new instance of, of the nation. And what happens in Japan with the founding of the nation? Suddenly there is the, the, this folk culture or primitive religion, or you know, there's also suddenly this desire for return that is actually, I think, itself a kind of delusion. You know, we could read the whole Bible this way. Oh, if we could only get back to Genesis, mm -hmm. if we could only return to the garden. Several of us are, are from a mo movement called the Restoration Movement. And I think the very premise of it, you know, this is kind of a lot of the understanding coming out of 19th century America you know, the United States. Actually, Mormonism, I think the whole notion of, in Mormonism is a kind of return to the primitive, a kind of return to a previous state. So the, the Christian churches, the rest, oh, if we could only restore New Testament Christianity. So there's several presumptions in this notion of restoration. One is that, oh, if we could just go back and grasp this earlier form, that there in some way was perfection. And of course, what you're doing simultaneously is you're missing the point that theologically, you know, Matt and David have said a very simple thing that is actually quite radical. 
And that is, I, th I think we can make progress theologically. We can do this thing and understand it in a progressive fashion, that Revelation itself is evolving, it's unfolding in Scripture, and I'm presuming that it continues to unfold throughout history, so that uh, I think that it's actually possible to apprehend, understand, apply, you know, however you want to say it, that we can make progress theologically. And so our goal is not a goal of return. There is something retrograde and uh, almost, you almost cut yourself off from uh, actually a kind of basic premise of this class is that, like in my work, I've identified a psychoanalytic understanding. I think I am applying a Pauline understanding, but I think uh, that we can understand that even better, that we can grasp these things in a deeper fashion. And I think that unfolding reality is a presumption that is very often not there. There is, there is the presumption, oh, we just need to go back. We just need to follow the tradition. It's not to deny the authority of history. It's just to deny it absolute authority. It, it, it reminded me of, um, you know, our individual sort of the career of the soul, or that it's a progression, right? That, our, that even our, in, our own salvation we think of it in terms of, a, of an infinite progression up into the life of Christ. We're going forward, in other words, right? We're stretching out up, you know, into infinity. We're, we're becoming, we're participating more and more in all of its length and depth and breadth and height into the love of God so that we're always moving from glory to glory. So shouldn't theology, you know, follow the same telos? There were three or four supporting concepts, Paul, around what you wrote about progress and conversion and theology. And so it's right on this topic. That, this was the only part of the reading that I, that really slowed me down, and I never quite got it. So I was wondering if you could maybe talk through this section. When you were talking about discernment and then had other supporting reasons for progress, I just didn't get the flow or the content there. So and I thought it might be important for you to talk through a little bit of that section about progress and conversion and progress in general. I didn't quite get it. And the language here can be dangerous. I don't know if you're all familiar with the idea of progress. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about some sort of inevitable progress or that time is progress, so that there can be kind of a scientific understanding that attaches itself to the idea of progress. So step one, I don't want to associate with that or imagine that's what we're doing. I see the church, the kingdom of God, Christ, as an, a, a reality, even atonement, as an unfolding reality that we're apprehending and that we can apprehend in our own lives, we can mature, we can grow, and I think that historically we can mature and grow. And of course, having said that, you can also go the other direction. Uh, I'm not saying there's anything automatic about it. But there is then this idea of maturing, and there are ideas that will stand over and against that. The political moment is kind of an interesting one. Well, let's, let's we go to the Nazis. Maybe that's easier. That What was it that you know, Hitler is advocating? Well, you know, these, uh, the Jews, they've come in, and we Germans were a pure Aryan race. And the Jews have polluted our country and our nation. Martin Heidegger, you know, he's going to talk about getting back to the, the blood and soil of Germany. Matt, can I pick on your hero here a minute? David Bentley Hart. Matt had me listen to Hart talking about his infatuation with Japan. And I was just shocked to hear Hart fall into the same sort of rhetoric, talking about a pure Shintoism talking about Japanese culture as if it was the most unique of all cultures. Anybody that has a little bit of familiarity with Japan, they're going to recognize this idea. Are you all familiar with the notion of Orientalism? That's why in the book, by the way, I'm going through and changing all the capital E's and capital W's in East and West. I'm making them lowercase because we don't want to fall into reifying East-West as if those are actual categories. I hesitate to use that language, but sometimes it's hard not to. And so Orientalism is just a case in point of this thing that we're talking about. That is, what is a Westerner? Well, he knows what he is because he's not of the Orient. 
in this, you can make the Orient a kind of exotic place. You know, all, you know, in the Orient, they do things instinctively, instinctually, that they, you know, there's a, a kind of pure, this is the way they will talk about themselves and Westerners will talk about themselves. If only we could get back to this pure culture. And that, you understand, that can go a lot of directions. The way that it went historically, that Orientalism was a Western means of colonialism. And then in Japan, Orientalism is reversed. They're going to take Orientalism, and they're going to make Korea and China their Orient. So this is an, an example of the large thing that I'm talking about, the, the desire for return. I think this is there in Trumpism, but it's always just been there in Republicanism. The, you know, it's these liberals, you know, it's really the black people, or it's, it's the Mexicans, Alan. If we could just keep you Mexicans, you know, we need to build a big wall. You can oh. try. <laughs> <laughs> and the idea is that there is some pure thing. First of all, there is no such thing. Everything is hybrid. Everything is a conjoining of things. There is no Aryan race, even the idea of race. This is why, you know, critical race theory is so interesting. It's such a biblical notion that the law included the antagonism between Jew and Gentile. The law was structured on that antagonism. Of course, it's <laughs> it, it, and the whole idea is to break down that wall of hostility. Should it shock a Christian that law might contain prejudice? Oh, that's the very premise that the New Testament is written upon, and to attempt to break down this law of hostility. So I think, Brian, that what we're when we're saying these things, we're hitting people's, in a way, this is the way where Christianity divides. There is this Christianity that would return, that would restore, that imagines, and this is very much the movement that I've, I've been a part of, the whole impetus. Oh, we just need to go back to the first century church. I think what I'm describing then is that that in and of itself is a kind of, I hope you, you can see it's a, it's a racist understanding. It's a violent understanding, because in some way you're going to exclude, you're going to purify, you're going to cleanse, you know, however you want to say it, you're going to build a wall of some kind. Restoration movement is split three ways. We are a very legalistic church, and I think part of that legalism is this idea. We just need to get back to this pure thing. I was just thinking with this whole talk about, you know, power, violence, the church, uh, do you think that maybe Christian churches refrain uh, themselves from killing, uh, not because they have matured spiritually, but maybe because the institutional church has lost uh, the power it once had? You know, this is a, a thing we did a little bit of in the class on the kingdom. I did a, a little survey, and I'll make some claims that I, I assume somebody's going to come along and disprove. And that is, I think you can trace every group that started in the United States. They all started out as nonviolent, and they all have given up nonviolence. I think that institutionalization does have something to do with it, but I think the subject of this class actually is the key to it. This is my opinion. And that is that they did not have a doctrine of the atonement to support their nonviolence. And once you accept a violent atonement theory, what happens historically, you relinquish the nonviolent position. What we're describing here is such a pervasive thing that we're inundated with. Unless we ground ourselves clearly in an understanding of the work of Christ that is nonviolent, I don't think the position is one that endures. And I think that what comes with that, Alan, is that you're going to get the institutional church, the, the natural tendency of large institutions is to accommodate the principalities and powers by which they're surrounded. And I think that comes with an accommodation of violence. The whole concept of martyr, as the church grew through the first few centuries, though the word martyr 
it used to mean simply witness, and then it became someone who would be willing to die, whether they died or not. But then people were coming to Christ more when they saw how martyrs died. It's after Stephen's martyrdom that the church spreads, that the church does what God wanted them to do, is to get away from the nationalism of Jerusalem and Judea and go into the uttermost parts of the world. Even in that way, martyrdom is, is a key thing. Absolutely, yeah. And of course, again, we got to deal with the word, because the word has come to mean something different in the modern age. You can go out and look at the tombs of World War I soldiers. We'll talk about soldiers and martyrs. Oh, that would be repugnant to a first century Christian. So what a martyr was, was someone who took up the cross in the manner of Christ, not someone who wielded the sword, but someone who, in fact, died at the hands of violent men, not because they're swinging a sword, but because they're enduring that violence. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, you're right. Martyrdom has the idea. It's the real world embrace of death. And I think that's the impetus to true witness. You know, this is Jesus' whole movement into Jerusalem. This is the picture of that we'll talk about with Abraham, that he's one who is accepting. Again, death, the, the, what do we mean by death? You know, for Abraham, it didn't mean he is going to kill over dead, or it didn't even refer to himself. It meant that he had no way of propagating his name through his children. So to embrace the faith of Abraham is to, in some way, relinquish the notion of a grasp for life, propagating your name. This can just manifest itself literally in an infinite number of ways. What martyrdom is, is to do what Abraham did. That is to entrust our life to God, to trust God to propagate our name. You know, this is that Paul uses Abraham to define what faith is. Faith is resurrection faith, so that you embrace life and death together. You mm -hmm. embrace death together with eternal life. And so I think martyrdom describes a lifestyle. It describes an ethic that in some way, we again, we've lost because now, you know, anybody that lays down their life for the nation state, we might talk about as a martyr. But martyr was a very specific witness to the person of Christ because of the manner of the death. We could almost say, couldn't we, that the progressives and liberals are those who have adopted a, an atonement theory of violence as opposed to us conservatives who, who go back to, to the scriptures that uh, build a case of uh, nonviolence, uh, not only in atonement theory, but in, in practice as, as well. And, and I think you're getting the idea. We have a violent concept of God. Uh, you know, that goes with the violent atonement theory. We have a violent church. You know, you just go through that that is the predominant form that Christianity is going to take. Let me just say, that's the predominant form that human beings take. In other words, this thing is so necessary. It's just a logic. It's a compelling logic. It's a driving force that you would almost have to begin again. And I'm claiming, yeah, that's exactly what's happening in the reconstitution of things, the recreation. You know, this is John, the, the Logos, that he's actually describing the recreation of the cosmos. He's picturing the ministry of Christ in terms of the creation days. And here, everything is starting over. And so this is one of the early, you know, this is the theory of recapitulation. It's being done again, and that's the only way to do it. You can't get there from somewhere else. You've just got to reconstitute your view of God, reconstitute your logic, rework your understanding of the church, because this is such a radical notion. It's inclusive of every category. My question is more at the very beginning, because uh, I, I have no issue with the nonviolent atonement. But and to quote, I believe this was a quote from you, what one does with the sharp contrast between the Old Testament violence and the peaceable Jesus, so on and so forth. This is where I struggle. This is what I need to flesh out more. How do we explain Old Testament violence to get to the peaceable Jesus. You know, in stating that, I don't think I was being hyperbolic. Obviously, there are places you can turn in the Old Testament that are picturing the peaceable kingdom. 
that is the place where there is the picture of the, the swords being turned to plowshares. So I didn't mean to overlook those, but I was just concentrating on the passages that in fact have a portrayal of God that I think is an accommodation to people, because again, what we're describing, this was the only way people knew to survive. This is the only way people knew to constitute themselves is over and against other people. The Jews are going to be slightly different in all of this. And of course, their disbursement and their enslavement and their they're going to go through all this, that we're only going to be able to read this through Christ and through the understanding of Christ to come to an understanding, oh, that this thing that is unfolding with the Jews culminates only in Christ, and in and of itself, it makes no sense. And this, Matt can speak to this, Matt's reading through Origen, you know, Origen's an early church father. He would read the book of Joshua, and Origen says about the book of Joshua, if you take Christ out of Joshua, and remember, Joshua is just another word for Jesus. If you take the Christ out of Joshua, this book is unworthy of the Bible. But you put Christ in, and you understand that this is a book pointing us to Christ, then we can read this book and understand how it, how it too is about Christ. You know, this is the story of Jesus on the, on the road to Emmaus. He's explaining to them he himself is the interpretive key of the whole thing. This shouldn't sound too strange to us. You know, this is the way that Paul talks about the two mountains. He's going to use allegory, and he's going to, you know, he's going to use the two women as an illustration of two peoples. Paul generously uses allegory. It doesn't mean that Paul didn't believe in this history. He's just saying that the history is to be read in light of who Christ is. And so we have a, we've kind of shunned in our day and age, you know, we're kind of hard literalists. Well, actually, it doesn't matter what side of the liberal fundamentalist perspective you fall on. Everybody's just kind of hard-minded literalists. And I'm not saying that origin or that, that we have the freedom to do what Paul did, but we can see in what the way their treatment of the Old Testament, what they're doing with the Old Testament is to read it in light of Christ. And there are things and understandings in the Old Testament that Jesus himself is going to say about it. And when he says, you know, you've heard it said, he's not just talking about traditions. He's talking about food laws that are in the Old Testament. He says, what goes into a man's, you know, is not what is important, but what comes out. Who is it? Mark that says, and with that saying, Jesus abrogated the food laws. He just wiped them off the books. And so we, in some way, are hesitant in doing what Paul did and what Jesus did, and that is to read this and understand, oh, this isn't the final and full revelation. This is a partial, accommodated understanding. And we've got to read uh, the part of what I was going for there. There is a tension. It's not a tension that we create. It's a tension that's there in Scripture. You have the prophets who are talking about sacrifice, and then the prophets who say, in the voice of God, but I never asked for sacrifice. In other words, the accommodation of the king, the, I believe the manner of the conquering of the promised land, uh, you can read some of that. Maybe the intent was that they would go into the promised land gradually, but that's not what we get. They're going to see their God as a warrior God. And in that, they're just like every other people. But we can also see that there's another, there's an undercurrent to that. And by the time we get to Christ, we understand, oh, God is not a warrior God at all. He's not just another God of war. He's a God of peace. And so I think we shouldn't hesitate to look at these violent understandings and say, that's not worthy of who God is. And the reason we can say that is because we know who Christ is. That's not in any way to take away from the authority of Scripture. That's to go with the authority that the writer of Hebrews says, that in times past, God spoke to us in these ways. He compares it to shadows, and now he's spoken to us in the very, you know, the one who is in the very image of God. And so I think we have to see that. I was raised, you know, in a kind of fundamentalist understanding, and I, you know, you kind of overlook those things. Let's not, you know, that, uh, you know, that, that doesn't quite fit, but 
maybe there's an explanation somewhere. No, I think that there is an explanation, and it is that there is an understanding of God that is unworthy of the God that is revealed to us in Christ, and we need to say that. One of the other things, Paul, that the, the Jews did, besides the violence, and but it's certainly wrapped up in the violence, is make God into a national God, like the other the people around them. They had their gods, and that's what they saw in Egypt, that's what they saw in Canaan. It seems like that's part of their reasoning for asking for a king. So Absolutely. They, could, yeah. they could have a national identity that would include God on their side. And it says, you know, again, there's a tension in Scripture, and you're going to find this, that, that God himself will say in the voice, you know, or the prophets will say in the voice of God, I am the God of all peoples. Mm -hmm. You know, they didn't want to hear that, the idea of having a king. God never wanted them to have a king. He accommodated that. That's just a, a picture in the Bible that God accommodates their understanding. And they pass from, you know, having judges to having a monarchy. And then, and it may be that the whole picture that they have is an accommodation that is going to be, uh, this is Stephen recounting the history of the Jews. You know, have you ever thought, why do they get so mad at Stephen that they kill him? He's just telling the history of the Jews. Mm -hmm. Well, because in that history, he keeps pointing out, Oh, look, here's a Gentile. Oh, look here. God appears, you know, actually Sinai is not even in uh, that he's appearing. God is appearing not in the promised land. God is working with people who are not Jews. And, and of course, he ends the whole thing. And then God sends you the Messiah and you kill him. Just that recounting that history and recounting that tension in that history is enough to get you killed for a first century Jew. And unfortunately for a, dare we say it? <laughs> In other words, there is this idea we're going to fit Christ into a already existing frame. And what we're doing in this class is saying, no, we don't do that. That Christ recreates the whole framework. And we read the we read the Old Testament through who he is. We even read the New Testament through who he is. And that is our hermeneutic key. And what in, is included in that is the peace of Christ. Uh, that who he is, the manner of his death, that here is the resolution. And cognitive dissonance is not a bad thing. That's the point. The Jews hated him. The Romans hated him. Uh, he is, in the language of Rene Girard, you know, he is the scapegoat. But he's, he's going to reveal the scapegoating mechanism so that scapegoating is never going to work where the message of Christianity is spread. And so our tendency is to cover this up. And all I'm saying is, no, let's not cover it up. Let's look at the ugly stuff that's there and say, this is not worthy of the God who is the Father of Christ. And so to do that, you got to make some really difficult hermeneutical decisions that are going to be critical, right? So, and by the way, I want to say, Janice, it's so nice to have a, a female uh, voice because we yeah, have, yeah. It's, it's refreshing. Uh, it really Very is. Very much. And I think that uh, the question that you asked is such an important critical, that was my, that was like my big question too, right? And that is, is I, just to make sure you have the question right, as you said, well, how does this, the God revealed in Jesus Christ square with the revelation that we have of God in the Old Testament? It seems very over and against, right? Like very different. Like that was just a very basic understanding that I had when I was like, okay, what do we do with the Old Testament in light of, because I believe in the in the teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ about peace and about love of enemies and that he is the ultimate revelation of, of God. And he says, you know, if you've seen, the, if you've seen uh, me, you know, you've seen the Father and stuff like this, right? So I was like, well, wait a second. So I thought about the book of, uh, of, of Joshua, which Paul explained that, you know, in the Septuagint, Joshua is just the word Jesus, right? And so the reason, the way that I discovered Origin of Alexandria is because he wrote a commentary on Joshua, because I was thinking, as Christians, what do we do with this book? You know, this is a book about genocide. This is a book about dashing infants against the rocks, you know, this brutal genocide, right? Like in the antithesis, I would think of the teachings of Christ, right? And so I, I, I was like, so what do we do? And if Joshua is sort of maybe a microcosm of the whole Testament, it's like, well, what do we do with all this stuff that talks about God, you know, commanding people to do violence? And so when I discovered Origen, and specifically that commentary, I started to see what, what Paul was just explaining about what texts are going to be worthy of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
right? And so Origin has like this hermeneutical method, whether we agree with them or not. I, I think it's I think it's, it's it's really cool either way. But he says that you know what Paul was describing about Saint Paul earlier. You know he says that these things happen figuratively. You know he said he uses the word allegorically. He says these things happen to them allegorically for our benefit, right? And so Saint Paul says that the law is spiritual. That's what he says in Romans. I think is it Romans seven, Paul, that the law is spiritual. And so Origen goes back to the to the Old Testament and says, okay, there must be different senses to the scriptures. And so he says it's like a human being. There's the bodily sort of fleshly, what he calls like the literal understanding of the scriptures, which is kind of like the obvious meaning. I can see your body. I can see that you're female. You have glasses. You have you know blonde hair. Whatever it is, it's like the, it's the literal bodily sort of thing. Then he says there's there's the, there's the next part, which is like the soul. It's like the moral meaning of the scriptures. So you can read the scriptures, and you can even even a non-believer can say, "Oh, that's a good moral teaching," right? But then he says that there's the highest is like the spiritual. So he says that this corresponds with the human being, right? So that we were made up of body, soul, and spirit. And he says so that Christ, he says, is incarnate in the scriptures. So this is what really captured me. He said that not only was Christ incarnate historically, not only is Christ incarnate in you know his children and in, in you and I, not only is he incarnate in the Eucharist, but that he's literally that he's incarnate in the text. But the only way to sort of access Christ in the text of the old, of the Old Testament is to read them in a spiritual way, right? And so he he doesn't he, he never tires of saying quoting Saint Paul that the letter kills but that the spirit gives life. He says that if we just read these things literally and without reference to Christ, that of course we're going to get two images of God. Of course we're going to say like, okay, there's a, there seems to be a God who's committing genocide on the one hand, and there's a God who's saying you should love your enemies on the other side, and never the twain shall meet. So Origen's saying, okay, well, what are we going to do? What are we going to do to make this intelligible? So he, he doesn't want to do away with the literal. He says, actually, most of what happened in the Old Testament has actually happened. Uh, we certainly want, don't want to do away with the moral because there's all sorts of good moral teachings. But that the, he says that actually the Old Testament is veiled, that if we don't read it, and this is just what St. Paul says, that, that apart from Christ, the Old Testament is actually veiled from our understanding that God is veiled from our understanding because we're reading it without reference to Christ. Does that make sense? So he does, he allegorizes Joshua and he says, well, since Christians don't have any need, you know, since we're taught by our Lord Jesus Christ to love our enemies and things like that, well, what do we do with Joshua? He says, so then he begins to allegorize it. He says, well, you know, you can think of the promised land as uh, our soul and uh, the enemies, you know, the Midianites, all these different people as like the passion, sins, evil, the devil, however you want to think about it. And that the whole point of what Christian salvation is, is to utterly vanquish, you know, these, these enemies, right? So he says that's one way to kind of read these texts profitably for a Christian. But all that to say that I think that your question is like absolutely central. And that is, is that because this is what the big kind of discussion, I think, always is that even Christians want to continue to live by the, le the letter, right? And they say, well, wait a second, it says right here in the Old Testament that, you know, you're to go in and kill everybody. And so they want to kind of read it by the letter. But St. Paul is clear. He just says that, uh, you know, the, the letter kills, it obscures, it, it veils the actual true spiritual meaning, which is Christ in the Old Testament. So, I guess for origin, all that to say is that our kind of task as Christian readers is even from the very beginning, that in the beginning God created, it's like, well, we know because of the gospel of John that Moses is talking there about our Lord Jesus Christ, because, you know, in the beginning was the word. So everything in the whole Old Testament then is in some way, it's, it's to be read spiritually, that is, in light of Christ. So that really helped me. And all, all that, you know, sort of rambling was, was to say that that really helped me because I think that what Paul is saying is, is that we're going to have, Paul Axton, is that we are going to have to make some uncomfortable, potentially, decisions about how we read. We've been conditioned to read, I think, as, everything as literal and sort of a flat kind of way. Um, without reference to what Origen is talking about with, with either the, you know, the soulish, you know, the moral even sometimes or, or the spiritual, but that's to kind of veil, like Jesus Christ then remains veiled, right? In the Old Testament, if we don't read it with the key that I think Paul is, Axton is, is trying to give us. So in other words, we don't have to use Origen's method. We don't, we, we don't have to say, okay, you have to subscribe to that exact sort of hermeneutics. But I do think that he's right, that at the end of the day, it's like if a text 
isn't in accord with the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ and of the goodness and the things that we know that has been revealed in him, then we have to do something with those texts, right? We don't want to just get rid of them. We don't want to just say, oh, these are, these are just Jewish myths or fables or whatever. But we have to, in some way, read them in a, in a profitable Christian way that can help us, you know, that doesn't obscure Christ, but it actually elucidates the text. It actually, it actually brings, it gives even more light because Christ, again, is incarnate in the text there, but he's hidden, Paul says, right? He's veiled. It's, a, it's an interesting question. It's a question that I think that this class is going to be continually trying to answer because if Christ is incarnate in the text, if he's incarnate in our neighbor, if he's incarnate in the Eucharist, then obviously in some way he's incarnate in history and specifically within the history of the church, right? And so I think that with Paul, what Paul might be saying, and maybe this is another way to put it, well, maybe the letter of tradition can kill too. That is, is that if we're just so hellbent on, on sort of like the letter of the tradition, that we miss the spirit of Christ that if Christ is incarnate in the history of the church, and I think that he is, I absolutely think that Christ is incarnate within the councils. I think that there were men there who were full of the Holy Spirit, who were coming to those councils and they were comparing their wounds and things like this and the scars that they'd received from their testimony of our Lord, you know, that the Holy Spirit was at, was there, absolutely, and presiding over that ultimately. But at the same time, if we get kind of wrapped around the axle and around the letter, we might miss the spirit of those councils, which was to move the church towards the glory of Christ, further and further, you know, from glory to glory and saying, well, this is who the Father is, this is who the Son is, this is who the Holy Spirit is, this is what, you know, the nature of the icons are, this is, and so I think that it's it, it's our task to continue that incarnational work of the Spirit in bringing like this, this peaceable kingdom conversation to, that may have gotten, you know, that, that's maybe in some ways subsequent, but I think it is subsequent in a lot of ways because of our reading. Our, hab our habits of, of reading uh, that we've left behind, you know, the wisdom of a lot of the early church fathers, and we've become sort of just like modern, modern readers to our own peril. We're going to hit this again and again in a lot of different ways. And Matt is using a phrase here, the letter kills. Of course, that's right out of Paul, but it's also an orientation to language that we'll talk about, that I think that what is involved in this, this kind of what we're describing, a kind of reification of human thought, human language. I think it is the impetus that we're describing. We're des describing a deep-seated psychological impetus to attach ourselves to the letter and miss Christ. We'll unfold this. One of the ways is through Rene Girard, you know, as we look at Girard's uh, scapegoating mechanism. I, I think maybe most of us have come from a more literal way of reading the Bible. And I think we, we are usually afraid of using allegory. And, and as Mr. Axton was saying, you know, uh, the Apostle Paul in Galatians definitely allegorizes uh, Sarah and, and Hagar. He compares them to uh, two mounts and all that stuff. But it's kind of ironic because even as literalists, uh, you know, when we take scripture that literal, even as, you know, preachers, and teachers, we still allegorize scripture to try to bring an application to our daily lives. So we're kind of afraid to do it consciously, but we do it anyway <laughs> to try to apply it to our times. And so I think it is important to use that key even in the Old Testament. A, a way for me, I think, to understand also some of that violence that goes on in, in the Old Testament is that we usually bring our concepts of good and, and and bad into the text and you know for example in 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 hebrew the the word evil does not necessarily have a connotation of you know something that's morally evil and so sometimes when it says that you know god is thinking of doing evil to to something in the hebrew language it, it means to bring an order into I mean, it can mean to bring an order into something that's gone out of order. So in, in creation, for example, you know, there's chaos. And so God puts everything into its proper place and, and everything's in order, everything's functioning well. And so usually when nations, let's say like the Jewish nation goes astray and he has to bring them back <laughs> to, to its proper place, of course, that order, it's going to hurt them. And so from their perspective, God is causing an evil on them when he's actually putting them back in their you know, right place. So I think of like 
like a chiropractor. You go to a chiropractor and it hurts whatever he's doing, but he's actually fixing you up. He's putting everything back in its place. So of course it's going to hurt because you're used to being in the wrong <laughs> in the wrong way. And so when he puts you back in its right place, it's going to hurt at that moment. And so, I mean, that's another example on, of a way of trying to read the, the scripture, but without bringing our definitions into certain concepts. Uh, and I also think like uh, what Ray was saying was important too. Like even the, and it's a violent way of saying like we grasp scripture, but that's what we usually do. We try to grasp even God in the Old Testament or Jesus to try to make him think the way we do. And that's what the Jewish nation did. It's like, oh yeah, God is the creator of all things, but he's only our God. And that was part of the Shema. He's our God. <laughs> he's only the, the God only of the Jews. But even it, what, the way Paul would even allegorize that in his letters is when he talks about circumcision and, and the Jews being uncircumcised in that, in that sense, it's because in the promise to Abraham, Abraham was going to be the father of many nations. The word nations is the word that's translated as Gentiles in the, you know, in the New Testament in Greek. And so basically, when you read the Septuagint, the Jews are Gentiles because they are one of those nations. <laughs> Abraham is the father of, of many Gentiles because he's a Gentile. So the Jews are Gentiles. And so does that type of allegory too, to bring up about the whole idea that, yeah, God is not only your God. Yeah, he's God of the Jews and he's God of the Gentiles too. And so he breaks that violent grasp that, that, grasp that we have on, on God. And so once we get rid of that, I think we can start reading scripture in a lot of different ways that are, you know, essentially nonviolent. In other words, what we're describing here, this kind of reification of the sign, the word, the language, you can do this with anything. You can even do it with the cross. In other words, you can make the cross a symbol or a sign that is in some way removed from what it signifies. You know, that's actually the problem we're dealing with here, that we've taken the cross and we've emptied it of its original meaning, it kind of just floats free as a master signifier, and we can hook up anything we want to it. I don't know if you all have seen the documentary on the family that's actually the National Prayer Breakfast. They do this with the word Jesus. Right. You know, Jesus. Oh, well, if you say the word Jesus and you pray in the name of Jesus, it's just become a master signifier which you can hook anything up to. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we're describing again and again. The letter, the word, the, you know, we're going to reify this thing, and it's no longer going to be connected to the reality of who Christ is. And so our tendency, I think just as human beings, this is idolatry. This is what the idolater does. That is, the idol is a sign that is reified in and of itself, you know, Paul says the idol is nothing. You understand the idolater would agree with him. Oh, the idol is nothing. It symbolized, you know, in, in Japan, the idol is a symbol or sign that you cling to. You worship the sign. You worship the symbol. There's no sense of obtaining Buddha in the, in the uh, Buddhist idol. Uh, I may have leaped too far with you, but the idea is that we can, in other words, we, our tendency is to reify the sign and leave it removed from, from what it is signifying. Oh, today I put a note on here. It said, you know, it's a personal, it's my God, it's my Jesus. Are we doing injustice to the peaceable Christ by saying that he's mine? This gets into Augustinianism too, that our tendencies toward piety, toward interiority, you know, we're going to, that what we're going to do with our own interior self is cut it off, and we imagine, oh, that, you know, it's actually who I am is uh, within me. You know, I have these thoughts, and, you know, this is Cartesianism, you know, I think, therefore I am. But actually, my I trace this back to Anselm Canterbury. He's literally going to talk about his word as being a parallel to the word of God. So we, we're grounded in a kind of individualism, and a kind of deep-seated interiority that is, of course, just not true. That what we are as human beings is corporate, that we're constituted by 
corporate entities. And that's why we're saved corporately. We're saved through a group. We're saved through the body of Christ. So we have this image in Christianity in a kind of, well, a lot of forms of pietism. You know, it's just individual souls going to heaven. Mm -hmm. But that's not the picture of salvation in the New Testament. It is this being incorporated into the body of Christ, which I think we can call that an alternative culture, an alternative embodiment. And it's not a departure from the world. In fact, we become incarnate corporately so that suddenly we're joined up with other people. The alienation, you know, that that gives us that sense of an alienated interiority in which I need a little private God in order for this thing to function. Oh, the whole point of Christianity is that this is a thing that we share corporately. I'm not doing away with human interiority. I'm just saying that there is no such thing as this isolated individualism. Paul, something, if I remember right, with, within the reading, I think you make the case that there are things that God did in the Old Testament. Uh, he enjoyed the aroma of the sacrifices, but later on he reveals, I no, no I don't, you know, the, the sacrifices, I, I have, find no pleasure, yeah. He allows certain things like divorce, but later on you realize he hates divorce, right? He allows polygamy, but later on he hates polygamy. Is it possible that God at times in the Old Testament, uses violence, but he certainly hates it as he's moving towards a more complete picture. I mean, you know, you take the flood. I, I struggle. I mean, I, under, I understand origins, uh, why he allegorized um, a lot of things, and because I, I think, you know, he was, he was trying to, to connect the two. I'm just not so sure I'm comfortable with allegorizing everything. I'm not either. Origin's kind of fun, but I can't say I agree with everything. Some things I won't, I don't have an answer for. Rene Girard is going to give us a reading of the flood. I don't know if I agree with him, but I kind of understand his reading. You know, that what's happening in the flood period is these people are psychopathic killers, and there's this kind of an unleashing of a global violence. And so he reads the flood as kind of the unleashing of that violence. I don't know that that's the case, but in some way, the idea of a punishing sin, there is this sense in which it's inherent. This is the opposite of penal substitution, in which, oh, we have to be saved from God's punishment. No, what we need saved from is human evil. We are self-punishing. You know, we create these systems. And so in that, I kind of agree that Gerard is on a track. I don't know that I agree with him on the picture of the flood, but I think that's often a way to understand that what is taking place is a projection of violence onto God. And I don't I just don't think God does violence. Period. I'd like to think that. I just know that the response I would get, I can think of about four responses. The atheist is going to say, then this is all a joke. The Bible isn't true. Because look, it says right here, slaughter these people, dash them against stones, etc., etc. My liberal friends are going to say, it's all allegory. None of that really happened. He, he was just trying to tell us a story. And my diehard Trumper friends are going to say, see, war. God needs war. That's, that's He's building his kingdom here on earth through us. Let's yeah. go kill the heathen. The way I don't that like any of those answers. Yeah. And so what we're what we're saying, you know, this is Gerard's I, I think you can apply Gerard better even than Gerard. Why does Cain kill Abel? And why do these people become killers? They become psychopathic killers. And he's going to unfold that. And then he's going to picture Revelation as a departure from that kind of all-out violence. And the way that it happens, think of Joseph and his brothers. You know, Joseph becomes a scapegoat that they would kill, and it's interrupted. Joseph is a type of Christ in this, that they, in fact, don't kill Joseph. And think of the two women that Solomon, you know, the two prostitutes that come, and they each claim the baby. And Solomon says, oh, the, the solution is easy. We'll just slice the baby in half. And of course, the one woman says, yeah, that's a good idea. Give me my half, and I'll go home. And the other woman says, no, let her have the child. And that's the point at which the wisdom of Solomon becomes famous. And I think that this is continually the truth that is unfolding, culminating in the, the life and death of Christ, that there's a, this exposure of violence, 
that we would just cover up. And I think the, the Bible is not free of that same process, that violence gets reified, it gets deified. Even in the Old Testament, it's going to talk about this covenant with death. There is this antagonism that is there in Scripture, but that antagonism, there's a resolution to it. I'm reading Zizek. Zizek's an atheist. He's a, he would agree with this whole conversation. You understand this conversation, any good postmodernist is going to tune in and say, that's right. You know, this is Jacques Derrida. He's just saying, yeah, the whole thing, law is law. And that is that there's an inherent violence to the whole system. This is Michel Foucault. You know, this is just being discovered again and again, this kind of pervasive inherent violence in which we're situated. And so, you know, the new atheists, they're going to say, oh, it's those religionists. Well, what they're missing is, no, this is, this is a pervasive problem that is just shared by humanity. And I think once you see the kind of universality of the problem, then we can have an appreciation for the way in which all of Revelation is addressing that predicament. I think there's another, too, maybe more fundamental. Um, there's something that we will need to deal with. We don't have to deal with it right now, but it's just to sort of raise the question. And that is, is that God doing violence presupposes God being angry. So we write in some way that God is literally angry. That is, and so so we have to look at that language and say, well, does God, can we, can we take human way, you know, human emotions like anger or, you know, that God repents? Hence, and he changes his mind and things like this, or, or God gets sad and stuff like that. Or maybe getting sad is, you know, a, a bad example, but obviously whenever God smells the aroma, he doesn't have a nose, right? He, he doesn't have, he's not a human, you know, that, that is for me, that's part of how we have to take that into our reading of, uh, you know, of the scriptures of the old Testament and say, well, because anger, you know, does God change? Basically, does he is he because he is he nonviolent? Then he's angry. Then he gets mad. Then he's then he's then he's sad. Then he's then he's like me, right? And it's like no, I don't think God is like me. I think that God is um, he's he's so much further beyond. Well, I would just say mutability. That plays an important role, like in how we are. This whole conversation is like, well, does God does God change his ways? Does God change his methods? Does God change? Uh, does does he, does, you know, and then the flood story that David was saying, it's like, and remember, I, I think that all three senses are important, that there really is the literal, that it, it's historical that it happened, that there's the moral, that there's a, you know, moral sense, and that there's a spiritual sense. But, you know, he says right there that in, in that story that, and God was sorry that he made human, mankind. It's like, well, do we really think that God, you know, said, dang it, I shouldn't have, you know, done that. Now I got that one. I got to try again. Yeah. You know, let's try again. Yeah. Let's start over. It's like, well, that's not worthy of the glory of Christ. You see what I'm saying? Like, that's not worthy of the glory of God who, you know, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, tomorrow, and, and you know, today and tomorrow, right? So in other words, we got to take some of these things into consideration. I think that a lot of times we re, we, Paul was just talking about reifying. Well, what our basic tendency to do is, I think, is to reify ourselves. That is like our own ego, our own anger management, our own hatred, our own desire for revenge, our own bitterness, our own, you know, resentment or whatever else it is. And to reify that back up into God and to think that God's ways are our ways that, you know, he's got to have, you know, his wrath satiated or he's got to, he's got to take, you know, um, vengeance or, or at least in a human way. My question we have to keep going back to is, is violence worthy of the glory of Christ? I don't think so. I mean, I think that clearly Christ teaches that the violence is not worthy. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So we got to all that and recapitulate, right? Reorient our minds to Christ. You know, have the mind of Christ as we're reading those passages. Yeah. It's very difficult work. This is not for right. the heart. It's, know, the, uh, the word that comes to mind, keeps coming to my mind, is the word capricious. Is God a capricious God that he changes his mind, that he takes on the the attributes of humans. I mean, that's how the human authors described him because that's how people would understand, but that doesn't mean that God is capricious and all that. That's the concerning thing for me is we're making God into our image, which is what idol worship is. Right. We'll get into this more. We'll look at 
the patristic understanding of actually tying who God is to the person and work of Christ. I think that's important to do that. Not to some pre-existent logos, but to the incarnate Christ. Uh, I think that's going to open a lot of things for us that, again, we've done with Jesus or Christ and the pre-incarnate Christ what we would do with everything. We would abstract it, we would make it disincarnate, and so I think we just continually have to come back to Earth. But we'll cover a a bit of the history of uh, penal substitution, divine satisfaction, and what happened there. It's sure good to meet everybody and to open the conversation. And so we'll see you same time next week. All right? Thank you. Okay. Good night. Good night. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org. Dot org.